Our scripture lesson is taken from Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and reading the entire chapter, page 275 in the Pew Bible. Before I read that, I just want to give a little uh, explanation. Uh, Normally when a minister who preaches regularly for you preaches twice on the Lord's Day, he has a textual sermon at one service and a confessional sermon at the uh, other service. But uh, Reverend uh, Lubbers has asked me to uh, refrain from doing that for the time. He, doesn't, uh, he wants to handle the catechism sermons, which is fine. I've been through the entire catechism with you, and uh, now it's his turn. So on uh, those Sundays where I preach twice now for the time being, and also with the knowledge and permission of the elders, I'll just be having two textual sermons rather than a textual sermon and a catechetical sermon. And I also thought uh, that since uh, Reverend uh, Lubbers is in the New Testament, I would uh, lay aside uh, for a time my uh, series on the Gospel of John. It's a, a good place to stop. It's a natural division in the, in the book where Jesus ends his public ministry. And uh, I was going to stop there and take up something from the Old Testament to balance uh, a little more the uh, sermons that we're getting from the New Testament from Reverend Lubbers. And so, I'd like to begin uh, a study with you of the, uh, the book of Judges. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. It's a fascinating book, and I hope that uh, you will find it uh, very instructive and uh, helpful for our life of faith together. The book of Judges, chapter 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba and they killed Shishai, Ahimam and Talmai. And from, from there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sephir. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kiriath-Sephir and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Athza as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Axa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you wish? 
So she said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also Judah took Geza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the inhabitants, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show mercy to you. Show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which it is to this day. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, Teabak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblin and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Now, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahola. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Aleb, Aksib, Hebla, Aphek, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanite, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, nevertheless. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell there in Mount Harris in Aijalon and, and in She-Album. When, yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they put them under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah, and upward. Thus far the reading of God's word. Beloved of the Lord, I would think that most of us would think of the book of Judges as a book of history. Uh, It gives an historical account of uh, the 
people of God after the death of Joshua and uh, describes how they continued to take over the land that had been assigned to them by God. But Jewish scholars, particularly ancient Jewish scholars, did not classify it as an historical book, but as a prophetic book. They uh, called it one of the former prophets. And they, uh, they had that understanding because they realized that this wasn't just history. They, they certainly were aware that it was history, but they, they recognized that it was a history that was somewhat prophetic, that it, that it gave lessons for the future. And uh, it was necessary to uh, understand it in, in that kind of perspective. And I believe that, that there's a, a good deal of truth in that because uh, this book contains a lot of symbolism uh, you know, if uh, you study the book of Judges, you see a, a lot of uh, heads getting crushed, both literal heads, like getting crushed with a tent peg or with a millstone tossed upon it, or uh, heads of state, like uh, uh, the uh, uh, Adonai Bezek, who was head of state and uh, died as a result of uh, Israel's uh, conquest of the land. Uh, there's a lots of heads uh, rolling, so to speak, and that's in, in fulfillment of, of the prophecy from Genesis 3.15 that uh, God says to uh, the serpent, uh, you shall bruise his heel and uh, he shall bruise your head. And uh, Paul interprets that in his letter to the Romans as crushing the head of the serpent. And in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, even now Jesus is putting all his enemies under his feet, the way Joshua Put, uh, told his five generals to put their feet on the necks of the kings that they had conquered when they conquered the kings of the south. And so uh, we see kind of a, a symbolism there of uh, heads and uh, so forth, and it uh, reminds us that indeed uh, Jesus has come to put all his enemies under his feet. There's a, uh, a fascinating uh, story in the first chapter about Axa and uh, Othniel, a love story. I don't know if you're aware of it, but that love story appears uh, twice in the Bible uh, here and also in, uh, in the book of uh, Joshua. It, it's uh, a story about a, a man who, for the love of a woman, goes out and defeats an enemy in order to win his bride. Never did any uh, uh, knight errant uh, go dragon slaying with any more vigor than this uh, young warrior goes out to defeat the Canaanites in order to win the love of his life. And it's, uh, you might wonder, why is that story in the Bible? Why is it in the story, Bible twice? Uh, well, because it's a picture of uh, our bridegroom going out to defeat an enemy in order to win his bride, the church. And you know, when the, uh, when the bride is won, she beseeches of her father gifts, and the father bestows gifts generously upon her, springs of water, which in the New Testament represents the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All of that is foreshadowed in this little vignette of a, a love story uh, from, uh, from a historical book. Uh, it is indeed uh, prophetic of the gospel. Uh, this book contains uh, two introductions. If you read into the uh, next uh, section, you'll see that 
Joshua is alive again. And you might wonder, okay, what's going on here? The, the chapter one begins with him dead, and then a, a little bit later on, he's alive again. Well, there, there's two introductions because there are two uh, great things uh, going on in the, in the book. There are uh, two good judges, Othniel and Ehud, two unlikely judges, a, a woman and a youth, two flawed judges, uh, Jephthah and Samson, and then uh, two Levite stories which are out of historical sequence. They really take place early during this time, and there's uh, plenty of evidence in the stories to uh, come to that conclusion. Uh, it's, the, the whole book is probably written by Samuel, Samuel who was the one who anointed Saul to be king and also uh, anointed uh, David to be king. It's uh, Samuel's warning about the evil and the chaos that comes when the Lord is rejected as the king of his people. It's about the lordship of Christ over his people and uh, what it means to be married to God in a covenantal relationship with him. Now, the chapter begins with the Israelites really realizing that they are under obligation to obey a command. The command is not uh, explicit, it's implicit. They know that God wants them to conquer the land of Canaan and to drive out the tribes that are uh, still living in that uh, land. Uh, Moses had uh, told them that when they go into the land, they're not to leave uh, alive anything that, uh, that breathes. They're to uh, go into the land and uh, destroy these Canaanites because their iniquity is full. You may recall that in uh, Abraham's time, uh, he was not permitted to just go in there and slaughter all the, the Canaanites. First of all, he was too small a group to uh, do that, but uh, we're told in Genesis 15, verse 16, that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its fullness. Uh, there were still righteous people in the land, and you remember Abraham's discussion about righteous people in the city of Sodom, and then would you uh, destroy the city if there were 50 people righteous? And God said, of course not. I'm not going to destroy it if there's 50 righteous people there, not even 10. Well, there were, there were righteous people in the land in Abraham's time. There was uh, Mel Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, priest of God most high, and there was uh, Abimelech, a Philistine king who was horrified that Abraham had lied to him about Sarah being his uh, sister instead of telling the truth that uh, Sarah was his wife. He was afraid that uh, something might, uh, a miss might have happened because of that lie and uh, he proved to be more righteous than Abraham in that regard. And so in Abraham's day their iniquity was not yet full but now the, the wickedness of the land is such that God says don't leave any of them uh, alive. Drive them out of the land and destroy them and uh, uh, they are under command to do that. God uh, promised to, to be with them in the pro process and uh, to help them in Exodus uh, 23, verse uh, 27. It says, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before you. Uh, it's just one of many promises where God says, you know, you go out, you fight against them, and I will be with you and I will help you. Now Joshua, when he uh, died, urged the people to uh, finish the work that had been started. Uh, a good beginning had been made under Joshua, but in Joshua 13, there's a, a list of 
lands that haven't yet been conquered. And God had said, I'm going to let you conquer it in stages. I don't want you to conquer it all at once, but conquer it in stages. And so uh, Joshua dies, and now at the beginning of the book of Judges, they say, okay, we, we know we're under obligation. We have a commandment to go out and do this. We have a promise that God will be with us. And they do the right thing. They go to God and say, How shall we, who shall lead us? Who shall lead us? They look for a message from God. God had uh, commanded them to always uh, consult him. Uh, Numbers uh, 27, 21 uh, says uh, that they are to inquire of God when in situations like this. And the message comes back. Judah is commanded to lead the way. Why Judah? Well, Judah is the, the royal tribe, the tribe from whom later would come a king. Uh, when Jacob blessed his sons, he said of, of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So uh, Judah is the royal tribe, the, the one that holds the royal scepter. It's uh, the tribe that uh, will give leadership in this. And uh, God promises here, I will give the land into his hands. So again, a promise is repeated. You know, this is, uh, this is not too dissimilar from the fact that we are under command and we also have a promise. Uh, I'm thinking of the command found in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which is often referred to and well-deservingly as the, the Great Commission, where God says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now go into every uh, nation and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. He commands us to go. He gives us a job to do, and he promises to be with us. And we go forward with the, uh, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God to conquer hearts, to bring them out of the kingdom of Satan and bring them into the kingdom of God and to build up the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, as they went, so we go. Christ is our king. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is on the throne and we are his servants and we go forth in his name to conquer uh, for him and for his glory. Now, on this occasion, the... Uh, the people respond to the message that Judah will lead. They respond well, and, and they begin well. There is uh, initial faithfulness, and the faithfulness begins with what some have called the salvation of Simeon, or I think maybe redemption of Simeon, or the uh, uh, redemption of Simeon from shame and disgrace. Uh, what am I speaking of? Well, I'm speaking of the fact that when Jacob blessed his sons just before he died, his 12 sons. Not only did he designate Judah, the royal tribe, but he had something to say about Simeon and Levi. And it wasn't much of a blessing, it was more of a curse. He said, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, the tribe of Simeon and Levi are shamed and disgraced by that blessing from their father. Now, Levi had an opportunity to uh, 
make their name a little bit more uh, uh, honored when at Mount Sinai they acted faithfully and with zeal for the Lord put to death those people who had uh, worshipped the golden calf that Aaron had made. And uh, Levi, as it were, redeems themselves from the curse and they are blessed at that time and honored with the work of being Levites. They're still going to be scattered in Israel, but they're going to be scattered as uh, priests for God's people with special blessing that they are the ones to take care of the tabernacle and later of the temple itself. But where is Simeon? Simeon is still shamed and disgraced by the curse that their uh, forefather put them on until the leader, the royal tribe, says to Simeon, come on with us, come with us. You know, that's, that was a very gracious and kind thing to do. Uh, they didn't deserve it. God had said, you're going to be scattered. You're not going to get your own inheritance. And indeed, their inheritance turned out to be within Judah's inheritance, which in the long run proved to be a very good thing for them. But, you know, I I think that this too is, is something like what Christ has done with us. You know, Christ is the king of the church. He is the leader of the church. And he says, I, I will build my church But how does he do that? Well, he says, come along with me. Come along with me and be my co-workers. That's how Paul referred to himself as a co-worker of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't arrogate that title to himself only, but all those who were engaged in ministry were co-laborers with Jesus Christ. Christ says, you know, come along with me and, and build the church with me. Uh, Simeon didn't deserve it, (laughs) and you and I don't deserve it, but that's the kind of God we have. You know, it often is the case that when men are uh, chosen by the congregation, nominated by the uh, council and chosen by the congregation to be elders and deacons, that uh, they have a profound sense of their own unworthiness. And that's good. It's good to be humble about that. And, but it's also wrong to think that because of your personal unworthiness that, that you don't belong in office. Christ says, come along with me. And uh, when he says, come along with me and be my co-worker, uh, he gives the grace that is needed to do the work that he calls you to do. And so Simeon comes along and we see the, the salvation or the redemption of uh, uh, Simeon as a tribe. They're uh, now uh, ex- experiencing the, the blessing of God and uh, no longer simply under the curse because of their anger. That anger, of course, goes back to uh, Shechem, but I won't go into that now. Anyway, uh, uh, one of the first victories that they have, again, is a symbolic victory, Adonai Bezek. Uh, his name means Lord of Lightning, which means he's a god of nature or a god of this uh, world. And he ruled over 70 kings. The number 70 is, again, a very important number in the Bible. It comes from Genesis chapter 10, where you have a a description of all the nations that are uh, come about after God divides a human being into various language groups 
the list there is uh, a list of 70 people groups or 70 nations. And so the number 70 from that time on becomes symbolic of all the nations of the earth. And so here you have a God of this world ruling over all the nations of this world in symbolic terms. And he's the first one to go down in defeat. Indeed, he is a representative of Satan, and uh, when our King Jesus goes out to fight, he defeats Satan. He defeats him at the cross and uh, wins a great victory, and uh, now God the Father has given the whole earth as an inheritance to Jesus, and he is still uh, conquering, putting all his enemies under his feet until his rule is established and uh, outwardly acknowledged uh, throughout uh, all the heavens and the earth. And what happens to this uh, king? Well, what happens to him is he receives perfect justice. He receives perfect justice. He says, just as I did to others in uh, cruelty, uh, God has paid me back for that cruelty by doing it to me. I got what I deserved. That's an important principle to recognize, that, that God's justice is perfect justice. One of the things that we lament so often is the fact that uh, in this world there is not perfect justice. We see uh, uh, political people seemingly getting away with crimes that ordinary people uh, can't get away with because of their power and influence and so forth, or we see uh, poor people uh, unduly uh, punished and oppressed because uh, nobody respects them and that sort of thing. Uh, there, there's all kinds of injustice in the world. But one day, that's all going to end, and it's going to end with a judgment that is just right, that is just perfect. And, and everyone who, who gets punished at the end on the last day will have to confess, as Adonai Bezek confessed, that I got what I deserved. It's important to everyone to realize because uh, unless you uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and uh, therefore he bears your punishment, your punishment is, is going to be what you deserve. You know, you, you may say, I've gotten away with a lot of things in this life, you know. Uh, Maybe you, you cheated on your income tax or you cheated on your wife and you didn't get caught and, and you think that it's going to go on that way forever, but it's not. One day you will be called to account and you will get what you deserve. And it will be an awful day if you are not covered by the blood of Christ. Well, they continue to go forth to, uh, to conquer and uh, they uh, go to Hebron or Hebron. And uh, there they, uh, they conquer the land of the giants. Uh, the three sons of Anak are uh, uh, destroyed there. Uh, these are the giants in the land. Remember when Moses sent out the 12 spies, 10 of them came back shaking in their boots because they were afraid that they're, they're giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers in their sight, and they discouraged the people from going into the land. But now, because... King Judah, the, the royal tribe, is leading them. They go there and they conquer these giants and uh, win a great victory. Then we read about uh, the Kenites, uh, Moses' in-laws, who are Gentiles. They find a place in the promised land, fulfilling a, a promise that uh, 
had been made much earlier in Genesis 9, may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. The Shemites are the Hebrewites, Hebrews, and uh, uh, Japheth is the uh, father of the Gentile nations, uh, as well as Canaan. And uh, it says there was a prophecy that these Gentiles would come and dwell in the tents of Shem. That is, they would share in the blessings that were given to the Hebrews. And now that's beginning to happen. You, have, you see a beginning here of Gentiles uh, being included among the people of God, a theme that, of course, comes to fruition at Pentecost, where the gospel is preached in all the languages of uh, the world and where uh, Paul says uh, the gospel has gone out now. Uh, to every creature under heaven, and uh, God is gathering into his uh, people some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Well, this is beginning already uh, in the time, at the beginning of the time of the judges. Simeon proves faithful by uh, totally uh, destroying the enemies of God, uh, unlike uh, when he uh, and Levi slaughtered people who voluntarily took the sign of the covenant. Now they go out and uh, destroy God's enemies. And from these victories... From these victories, we, we get an idea of what it is that, that Jesus does for us. He, he drives out our enemies, and he gives them perfect justice, and he establishes us in his church and in his kingdom. In Christ, we have a Savior who delivers us from our foes. Uh, that's the lesson that, uh, one of the lessons that we can learn from these opening uh, verses of uh, the book of Judges. But... It doesn't go on that way, does it? Uh, it uh, begins to, to fall apart. And it begins to fall apart at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Uh, it's hinted at in verse uh, 18, where it says there that uh, Judah took uh, Geza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Well, those are three Philistine cities. But what's not mentioned there? Well, what's not mentioned is the fact that there are five Philistine cities, and they only took three of them. Uh, is, that, is that something we're supposed to pick up on? Well, there's, there, there's an inference that, that maybe they didn't, didn't do as much as they should have done, but then what is inferred or possibly inferred in verse 18 is, becomes explicit in verse 19. They go out against people with iron chariots, and they can't conquer them. Now, this is, this is bad news. This is bad news because uh, uh, God had promised that iron chariots would not be a problem for them. In Joshua 17, verse 18, it says, Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. That's what Joshua told them. And a little later in the book of Judges, uh, Deborah and Barak will indeed overcome an army with 900 iron chariots. And they won't have a, Deborah and Barak uh, didn't uh, have any uh, iron chariots of them, their own, but they go against this army with 900 and they go out there and they conquer them because uh, they trusted God's promise. But here they be, their, their faith in the promise of God begins to falter. They judge by what they see rather than what they hear from God, and they fail. And uh, then uh, we read that uh, Benjamin uh, lets the uh, Jebusites reoccupy Jerusalem. Now Judah had conquered Jerusalem and driven out all the Canaanite peoples, 
Then Judah hands it over to the Benjamin tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is now in charge of the city of Jerusalem, and these uh, Jebusites want to get back in, and Benjamin doesn't prevent them from coming back in. Uh, Joseph took Luz, that's good, but they let one of the people of Luz uh, go get free and go to Hittite territory, which is within the land uh, that they're supposed to conquer, and that person rebuilds the city of Luz. Well, when you rebuild these Canaanite cities, you rebuild their culture as well, and their culture is a pagan culture, an idolatrous culture, a, a culture that uh, angers God, and God warned them again and again, don't don't look at their gods, don't swear in their, the name of their gods, don't worship the, me the way they worship their gods and so forth, but now they allow this culture of the city that they're supposed to destroy, they allow it to continue. And so uh, their efforts are not uh, good. Uh, the list of pro progressive uh, failures increases, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and uh, Dan. And we see uh, three levels of progressive failure. Uh, first is that uh, the Israelites let the Canaanites live among them. Then the Canaanites let the Israelites live among them. Uh, who's in charge now? The Canaanites are letting the Israelites live among them. And then uh, finally, the Canaanites don't let the Israelites live there at all. The Canaanites drove back the tribe of Dan and said to Dan, you may not have your allotted inheritance. So uh, the first level of compromise is Israel lets the Canaanites live among them. Then the Canaanites, uh, the Israelites can't conquer them, but they reach a kind of truce and uh, the Canaanites let Israel live among them. And finally, some Canaanites say to Dan, you can't live here at all. The turning point comes in, uh, again, verse 18 and 19, when Judah began to fail. Uh, first, uh, they, they conquered, but uh, then their, their faith began to falter. They didn't trust the promises. And when Judah began to fall, then all the other tribes began to fall as well. And that, too, is a, a biblical principle, you know, uh, uh, in covenant theology, uh, which we sometimes call federal theology, uh, the covenant head represents all who are under him, and as the covenant head goes, so all the people go. Uh, you may have learned the little rhyme when you were long, young as, uh, in Adam's fall, we sin all. When Adam was doing the right thing, the human race was in good shape. What, when Adam fell, the human race fell with him. And here, when Judah was doing well, all the tribes were doing well. But when Judah falls, all the tribes begin to falter as well. There are a couple of lessons in this for us. Uh, we need to uh, see that uh, Judah is here a type of Christ and uh, is a picture of Christ, but a, a type of Christ that falls short of the mark. You know, the Bible is full of, of types. Uh, every, every Israelite king was a type of Christ. Every Israelite prophet was a type of Christ. Every Israelite priest was a, a type of Christ because Christ is our uh, chief prophet, our only high priest and our eternal king. And uh, they all tell us what, what he's like but every one of them in the Old Testament fell short of the mark. Uh, no Israelite king was able to establish peace 
forever. <laughs> he, couldn't, he could establish peace for a while, but it, it didn't last. It, it all fell apart. And so many kings have this epithet about them that in their old age, they, they departed from the, the way of David. They didn't walk in the footsteps of their father, David. Uh, they began well, but then they, they fell down and stumbled. And the whole Old Testament cries out for a better priest and a, a better prophet and a better king and uh, in so doing, it, it points to us to Christ. The same with the, with the sacrificial system. It was a, a, a good instructive tool, and it, uh, but it, it didn't, the cleansing that it gave was a ceremonial cleansing, not a real cleansing, uh, but uh, it pointed to the need for a better sacrifice, one that would once for all cleanse us. And so the, the whole Old Testament is, is teaching us to, to look for one to come who will do better than these who have failed in the past. Indeed, uh, it points us to Jesus, and Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and uh, he has succeeded where the Old Testament tribe failed. Uh, uh, when Adam was tempted of the devil, Adam fell into sin. When Jesus was tempted of the devil, he prevailed and did not fall into sin. And so uh, Jesus is the greater Adam, and Jesus is the greater Judah, and Jesus is the greater uh, high priest, uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, after whom uh, there's no uh, bad things about him in, in the Bible, he, uh, uh, and so forth. And so Jesus uh, fulfills these Old Testament types that fall short of the mark and, and teach us to, to look to Jesus alone for our deliverance and salvation from sin and death and hell. Look to him to uh, bring you into the fullness of your inheritance as a child of God, into his uh, eternal kingdom. Put your trust in him and in him alone, uh, because with him there is eternal peace and ever-increasing uh, glory and joy. But there's another lesson here beside uh, uh, that of uh, teaching us to, to look to Christ alone, to be our, our leader and our king and our uh, savior. And that has to do with, uh, uh, with our sanctification. Uh, we often think of uh, Jesus as the one who uh, takes away our, our guilt, and uh, because of it, we are justified freely by grace and now counted righteous in the sight of God and therefore have escaped the wrath to come. But uh, as far as this life is concerned, you know, that's something that we have to work out for ourselves. Uh, your life... Uh, here and now is something like the life of the Israelites once they're in the promised land. You know, they were, uh, they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they were set free by the blood of the Lamb, and they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea, and came into uh, the promised land to receive the inheritance. Now they're living with God in the land the way Christians now who have uh, been uh, justified by faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized and been made members of his church, now we're living with him in his church and in his kingdom. And uh, you and I have to uh, slay the Canaanite elements of our lives. And we don't have to look outwardly to do that. We have to look inwardly to do that. Uh, in each one of us, there is that old nature, that old nature of sin that has to be put to death. And uh, we have to do it uh, as uh, 
a sign of our, our love and, and uh, devotion to Jesus Christ. Every day you and I are called to put to death uh, that old nature and to be renewed in the image of Christ in true righteousness and, and knowledge and, and holiness. Uh, but how do you go about doing that? How do you fight against sin? Well, we have to do it by faith, by faith in uh, Jesus Christ, by continuing to, to trust his promises. You know, there's, uh, I, I recently read a, uh, a report that was a summary of a survey taken of 900 conservative, confessionally reformed ministers, not of our Federation of Churches, but one of our uh, sister churches. Uh, and uh, the, uh, one of the, the, the survey questions was, do you feel that your work as a minister is helping you to grow in grace? And the majority of ministers responded that their work as a minister was not helping them grow in their personal uh, life of, of grace and faith. And the people who did the survey were, were kind of startled by this at first, shocked. It seems counterintuitive. Uh, it's, it would be like an accountant saying that my work as an accountant does not help me when I try to balance my checkbook. You know, you would think that uh, if you're an accountant, you can balance your checkbook. If you want to balance your checkbook, you, you ought to be able to do it. And your work as an accountant has prepared you well to do that. Well, if a minister is devoted to helping people grow in their faith and their life of grace, uh, you would think that uh, doing that would also help him grow in a life of faith and grace. And what they discovered was the fact that... Uh, <clears throat> Most ministers, or a lot of ministers, tend to fall into this mindset where uh, their identity is found in the work that they do. Or another way, uh, they say, what is it that makes you a good minister? Well, what makes me a good minister is when I preach good sermons, and what makes me a good minister is when I visit the people that need visiting, and what makes me a good minister is when I good, give good counsel, and, and it's the work that I do that makes me uh, a good minister and, and brings God's uh, favor upon me, makes God uh, like me because I'm striving to, to be a good minister. That's the, what I, I have to do in order to know that, uh, that God loves me. Well, that's not it. That's, that's a contradiction of the gospel. What makes you a good person in the sight of God is not the good works you do. What makes you a good person in the sight of God is the good work that Christ did for you. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes, uh, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He's talking about the life which he now lives. He's not talking about the life he used to live and the transition from one to the other, but th this life of sanctification, I live by faith in the Son of God. It, it's he that makes me right. My identity is, is first of all, in Christ and, and not in the work I do. And, you know, it's not just ministers who do this, but it's uh, anyone who says, uh, you know, God, God is pleased with me because I'm a good accountant. God is pleased with me because I'm a good salesman. God is pleased with me because I'm a good uh, farmer. Uh, God is pleased with me because I'm a good husband and father. Um, it's, it's the work I do that, that gives me value. It gives me meaning. It gives me purpose. That's, that's what it is. No, it's the love of God 
the undeserved love of God in Christ that makes you acceptable. It's what Christ did that makes you acceptable. And all now these other things that you're doing, you don't do to make yourself acceptable. You do it to show your gratitude and love. It's a work of love. It's a work of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in Him, trusting that it's He who makes me acceptable to God. Uh, we're often, uh, you know, the book of Galatians is one of the really vital books in the New Testament. It's hard to pick one over another, but it is so vital because there you have a typical, a typical congregation or a group of congregations that begins well and then falls apart. <laughs> uh, they, they begin well because they begin well by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then they their life of sanctification is a bunch of rules, rules and regulations. That's how they're going to uh, make themselves now pleasing in God's sight is by obeying all the rules and regulations, and they fall into legalism. And that book is preserved, that letter to the Galatians is preserved because this is going on in the lives of ministers, in the lives of elders and deacons and every church member. We all have a tendency to fall back into this kind of thinking. Uh, we need to, to uh, be... Uh, like Paul, who says, the life I live, I live now by faith in the Son of God. The Israelites went out to conquest, but they compromised. And uh, if we will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. As Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, leads us from day to day, in doing the work that he has called us to do. May God give us such faith. Amen.